From our internships through our lives of professional practice, one commodity has been more valuable than money, sleep. You're listening to ReachMD XM233, the channel for medical professionals. Welcome to the Clinician Roundtable. I'm Dr. Gary Cohn, your host, and with me today is Dr. Gregory Balenke. He's a research professor and the director of the Sleep and Performance Research Center at Washington State University in Spokane. Today, we're talking about sleep, health, and work issues, and some of the approaches and solutions to those problems. Greg, welcome. Thanks for joining us. My pleasure. We've seen and read a lot in the newspapers about auto accidents and how drowsy driving is an important issue involved in that. As a sleep researcher, what is drowsy driving and and how is it manifested? Well, drowsy driving occurs in people who are not getting adequate amounts of sleep. It can also occur in people who are getting adequate amounts of sleep but are driving at a disadvantageous time of day when their body temperature is low and their circadian rhythm has reached a nadir, you know, between four and six in the morning. But the primary cause of excessive daytime sleepiness, which is what is happens with drowsy driving, is a lack of sufficient sleep the night before. Well, that would fit many of us as interns and residents and probably in professional practice as well. Yes, it does. And you can see in particular, certainly anecdotal accounts of people, let's say, working the ER overnight, stimulating, it's exciting, there's a lot going on. They look to be on the top of their game. They get off in the morning, 7, 8 in the morning, drive home, all the stimulation is gone, and they fall asleep behind the wheel. Well, in a more generic sense, I assume there's other risks associated with sleep loss that we can relate uh, both to our daily lives and the workplace. Any thoughts on that? Well, there are clearly sleep loss, whether it's sleep restriction, not getting adequate amounts of sleep, or total sleep deprivation, degrades performance across the board from the simple to the complex. So everything from basic reaction time, the speed with which you respond to a change in your environment to sort of thinking through a complex problem. These are all affected with the complex problems perhaps being more affected than the simple. You see this actually in friendly fire incidents. People are still able to shoot straight but uh, no longer know what they're shooting at. Do you think it's prevalent enough that questions about sleep and performance ought to be part of our history and physical that we do with our patients? Yes, very much so. This is amazingly neglected in primary care settings, despite really the knowledge that we have. I mean, if you ask people, they will frequently tell you that they fall asleep at stoplights. And there's often a circadian rhythm component. Late afternoon is worse. This is particularly true in older people. Our patients often tell us, yeah, I don't get enough sleep, but I can handle it. I can uh, deal with it. Are they right about that, or is there any way to predict uh, an individual's adaptability to sleep loss? People largely do not really adapt. What, What happens is that performance degrades. Even losing 40 minutes of sleep a night, and we've done this in laboratory studies, just a 40-minute decrease in total sleep time per night over days degrades your performance. So it really even mild sleep restriction, which all of us experience frequently, and many of us right now can say that didn't get quite what they should have last night, this mild sleep restriction it really does degrade performance. The adaptability 
if there is such, is that probably over time when you sleep restrict, your performance drops and then stabilizes at a lower level. And in that sense, adaptation may occur, but you do not go back to normal performance levels. You don't adapt in the sense of, you know, then normalizing your performance. Your performance remains degraded. So we adapt, but we have a lower hurdle to jump over. Yes, and so, you know, we're chronically sleep-deprived and chronically caffeinated, and that's how we manage. I understand there's some exciting work going on with brain imaging, and maybe you could tell us a little bit about that and how that contributes to your knowledge about these things. We've done imaging studies looking at uh, total sleep deprivation effect on brain metabolism. And after about 24 hours awake, brain metabolism drops by about 6%, but in prefrontal cortex, it drops 12 to 14%. So it looks like the part of the brain involved in anticipation, planning, good judgment, the ability to do things now that will save you trouble later on, that this part of the brain is particularly battered by sleep loss. You are listening to Clinician's Roundtable on ReachMDXM233, the channel for medical professionals. I'm Dr. Gary Cohn, and I'm speaking with Dr. Gregory Belenke, and we're talking about sleep, health, and work issues. Greg, you were talking about imaging, and I guess that sort of always gets us into a discussion of REM sleep and dreaming, and what, what have we learned about that, and how, how might that apply to the issues of productivity and safety? We have been, of course, very interested in what is it about sleep that restores performance, and so we did imaging studies in sleep itself, and we showed that in uh, non-dreaming sleep and non-REM sleep, you see overall a big decrease in brain activity of about 30%. I mean, for, for an organ like the brain, which is so metabolically active, this is a huge uh, decrease. During dreaming sleep, most of the brain goes back to waking levels of activity, of energy metabolism, except the prefrontal cortex. So one sort of different slant on the purpose of dreams you could look and say, well, what do non-rapid eye movement sleep and rapid eye movement sleep have in common rather than how are they different? Because, I mean, ever since REM sleep was discovered, there's been a mad scramble to find some unique function for it. And actually, its function may be rather what it shares with non-REM sleep, namely deactivation of the prefrontal cortex. The purpose of dreaming sleep may be to get additional downtime for this critical complex performance sustaining part of the brain. And so when you're sleep deprived, you can see this anecdotally, you tend to perseverate on failed solutions. You try the same thing over and over and over again. You can see this in accident investigations. You can see this in yourself when you're trying to load some new software and you just keep rebooting at two in the morning and you know it's not going to work because it didn't work the last time. Well, that certainly has implications for docs and uh, the way we take care of patients when we're sleep deprived. But many of us uh, think we not only can adapt, but that we have our own personal effective countermeasures. Are there any? There, of course, is one outstandingly effective countermeasure, and that's napping. Because napping adds to total recuperative sleep time. It is not necessary to get your full quota of sleep in one consolidated sleep bout. Bear in mind that something like two-thirds of the world's people regularly divide their sleep, main night sleep episode and then shorter siesta in the afternoon. This is uh, quite effective, and all the data that's beginning to come in really shows that as long as your total sleep time in 24 hours is good, 
that you really can divide the sleep up however it's possible to get it. Is there any minimum amount that a, a nap becomes ineffective below? That's open to question, but it seems that even very short sleeps really do have some restorative effect maybe out of proportion to the length of the sleep, actually. But again, it's total sleep time. And so you add, you get a five-minute nap. It's remarkable sometimes the effects of short naps. We've all had the experience of being in a boring lecture. The slides are terrible. The speaker's terrible. And you catch a five, ten-minute snooze in the lecture hall, and suddenly you wake up and the slides are better. So maybe the boss that fires his employee for uh, taking a nap on the job ought to reconsider that approach. Very much so. And if you look at, at some industrial settings, for example, the railroad used to do exactly that. And within, oh gosh, 15 years ago, people, it was a fireable offense in most rail operations. Now, naps are sanctioned and they're structured and there are certain rules that surround good implementation. They're now uh, part and parcel of successful operations. In addition uh, to napping, any other countermeasures? What about pharmacology? What do you think about medications? Yeah, uh, we're all chronically caffeinated, at least most of us, when you have extended waking, adenosine levels uh, build up in the brain, and these induce sleepiness. Caffeine blocks the adenosine receptor, and that's how it works to counteract sleepiness. So caffeine certainly is effective. It's more effective the less you use it regularly. So the less you use it, the more effective it will be in an emergency. There are other drugs, of course, the more classic stimulants like amphetamine and related drugs. There are new agents like modafinil, provigil. But basically, if you look at the data, stimulants are relatively there for acute use. I mean, they will improve performance and alertness for a few hours or a day or two, after which you get breakthrough sleep anyway. I mean, the effect really wears off. And if you look at, you know, a range of performance metrics, stimulants do not bring performance back to full, well-rested levels. They improve them. But for example, at 48 hours of sleep deprivation, high doses of amphetamine, modafinil, or caffeine take you back about 24 hours in time, so it's as if you were only 24 hours sleep deprived. I mean, this is an improvement, but it's not a normalization. So really, the only thing that normalizes is sleep sleep obtained in the main sleep period, sleep obtained in naps. Well, it sounds like as practitioners, maybe the thing we should say is a little caffeine and a lot of napping makes more sense than drugs. And I, I want to thank Dr. Gregory Belenke, who's been our guest. We've been talking about sleep, health, and occupational issues. I'm Dr. Gary Cohn. You've been listening to the Clinician's Roundtable on ReachMD XM233, the channel for medical professionals.